Well, hello, friends, and thanks again for joining us today for the Hillcrest Covenant Church podcast. This is week four of Advent season. Pastor Jen Zerby finished our Advent series and reminded all of us to magnify the love of Christ. Remember, you can watch our live stream on YouTube that happens on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., or you can find us online at hillcrestdecalb.com. Grace and peace, friends. You know, before I get started, as, um, as Pastor Bill was talking about just the privilege of getting to be together, that God created us to be together, um, we celebrate together, we worship together. I was thinking this morning, um, as the bells were playing and doing such a beautiful job, I think you all know that it's, a, it's customary now when, when somebody has finished their cancer treatment, when they're cancer-free, that they get to ring their bell. And so this morning, I just am, I'm just so excited and grateful. Um, Bruce, we rang all the bells for you. We're so grateful after a a whole year of of going through what you guys have been through that you were cancer-free. We celebrate with you. We love you. And we're just excited for you to move forward now. So uh, that is part of the joy of getting to be together as a church community is we get to celebrate these incredible moments together. Um, for all the, the weeks and months that we have spent praying over all these people, it's exciting to get to periodically uh, see the Lord answer a prayer like that. And so I'm just really grateful. Well, once upon a time here in the church, I told the story about when I first got glasses. I was in college, and I was, I was embarrassingly unaware of how badly I needed glasses, I'm not going to rehash it because many of you have heard that story before, but, but suffice it to say that I had the whole, the whole eye doctor's office in a complete tizzy when they learned that I had driven all the way from Illinois to British Columbia, or for that matter, that I drove it all. And I remember the feeling of leaving that eye place with my new glasses just mesmerized by how beautiful everything was, that I could see the leaves on the tree that I could see the snow on the tops of the mountains. I knew that British Columbia, where I was going to college, I knew that it was beautiful, but I did not know how beautiful it was until that day. Now, glasses come in like a thousand shapes and cool colors, and they're stylish, and they're, they're such a fun accessory that people who don't even need them have them. But back then, that was not the case, and I was embarrassed that I needed glasses. And so I switched over to contacts as soon as I was humanly able to. Well, now with this, I have this goofy autoimmune disease, and I have to get my eyes checked by a specialist every year because it can affect your eyes. And so a few years ago when I was at that particular appointment, she finished up and she said, everything looks good, which I feel so excited about because no doctor ever says that to me anymore. But then she adds on at the very tail end, you know, it might be good if you just, um, just swing through Walgreens at some, at some point and just pick up a pair of glasses to have at your desk. Uh, after you've been reading for a long time or staring at the computer for a while. And I looked at her confused, and I was like, but wear contacts. And she said, no, no, I know. I mean, I mean readers to wear with your contacts. <laughs> and this was a few years ago, and I looked at her deeply offended. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not even 40 yet. Why would you say something so awful to me? Readers? I was 39 years old. 
Now, at some point, I don't even know when, I did swing by Walgreens and I picked up a pair of readers and they're sitting, I don't know, they're somewhere in my office, I think. I hardly ever wear them because I'm still offended by the idea this many years later. But every once in a while, if I have been reading for a long period of time or I've been staring at my computer for a long period of time, I'll, I'll go ahead and throw those on. And this will come as no surprise to you, but they actually help quite a bit. Now, I can see okay with my contacts, but I am aware that after a certain point, my eyes start to get a little strained. And then when I put the readers on, what do they do? They magnify the size of the letters that I am reading so that my eyes don't have to strain to see them. Novel concept. This is what magnification does. It makes something appear larger. Well, this morning, believe it or not, as we've already mentioned, this is our final week of Advent. We've been doing a series that we've called Bearing the Light. In a time when it feels like things have been particularly dark in our world, we wanted to spend time talking about the hope that the light of Christ brings into the world this Christmas season. And so, so far we talked about the reality that God himself is light. We talked about what it means to bask in the light of God. Last week we talked about the responsibility that we have to bring the light of Christ everywhere we go. That it's not our job to save people, but for those of us who have experienced the light of Jesus, we carry that with us. And for some people, we are the only example of that light that they are ever going to see. And so this morning, for our final Sunday of Advent, we're going to spend some time talking about somebody who knew what it was to magnify the light. Our story for this morning takes us to the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Now, the first few paragraphs of the Gospel of Luke tell us about a couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. Scripture talks about them being, that they were both righteous in the sight of God. Scripture says that they observed all of the Lord's commands blamelessly. They were wonderful, faithful people, but they had grown old, really old, and they were unable to have children, which was a pretty shameful thing in that culture. Zechariah was a priest, and the, the priests would, they would essentially draw names out of a hat to see whose turn it was to go into the part of the temple that only the priest was allowed to go into. And so there was one day when Zechariah's name was the one who was chosen. It was a really holy honor. And so Zechariah got to be the one that went into the temple that day, into the one particular part of the temple where only priests can go. And so when he was in there, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. And I love Luke's account of this story because I think that we often think when we're talking about these Bible characters that they're like superhuman. And so we get this impression that, that when God or an angel of God appears to them, that they would be all calm. Like, oh, hello, angel of the Lord. So nice to see you. But that's not true at all. Luke clarifies that Zechariah was <laughs> like seriously freaked out. Like freaked out the way that you and I would be if we had come in this room late at night all by ourselves and an angel of the Lord appeared to us. He was that kind of freaked out. So first things first, Zechariah or the Luke tells us that the angel tells Zechariah, "Do not be afraid." Now, I'm not really sure that would work on me, but it seems to have calmed Zechariah down just a little bit. And so the angel continues, Your prayers have been answered, he said. Your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son, and you are going to name him 
John. The angel told Zechariah that this baby John will be a joy, that he will be a delight, and that many will rejoice in his birth, and that he will prepare a way for the Lord. This John later became John the Baptist. The angel said, John will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born, and he'll bring all kinds of people back to the Lord. And he will go on before the Lord to turn the hearts of parents to their children and to turn the disobedient toward wisdom. He will prepare a way for the Lord. And then Zechariah, well, he questions the angel Gabriel. Because like I said, Zechariah and Elizabeth are super old, too old to have kids, And so he doesn't understand how this is possible. And so the angel gets mad at Zechariah for not believing him. And so he causes Zechariah to not be able to speak until his baby is born. Which has nothing to do with our story for this morning, but it might serve as a cautionary tale that if the angel of the Lord ever does come before you, you should probably just believe what he says. But I digress. That brings us to our actual story for this morning. It's a pretty famous one. My guess is that even if this is your first day ever in church, you've probably heard some variation of this story. And if you want to follow along, you're welcome to. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1, and we're going to be starting at verse 26. Luke chapter 1, 26. The words will be up on the screen as well, or you can just listen if you'd like. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So I know that Luke's version here is pretty concise, but there are so many things that I wish that Luke would have added to this section. I have no doubt whatsoever that Mary's response really was as humble and as faithful as Scripture says. But I wish that Luke would have pointed out all of the things that had gone through Mary's head before she responded. Namely, the fact that while the angel is saying that this is good news, it's not good news for Mary. First of all, she is young, and her life is not her own. She belongs like property to her fiancé, Joseph. Secondly, she is a woman, which in that time and in that culture means she has no way of living on her own. 
She has no means of making it on her own when her life inevitably blows up, which it seems like it's going to when everybody finds out that she's pregnant before getting married, and it's not Joseph's baby, and so it seems like she'd end up all alone. It's not like she's going to be able to hide her pregnancy, right, from Joseph or her friends or her family. And so Mary is no doubt overwhelmed, and that's when we see her leave as quickly as she can after being given this news. She goes off to seek the understanding and the comfort of her older relative, her cousin Elizabeth, who will be a safe place for Mary. Not only that, but Mary, Mary wouldn't have known yet that Elizabeth was pregnant. And so if Mary gets there and Elizabeth is pregnant, it will be further proof, further confirmation that what the angel said to her was true. So let's look starting at verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And so here in this text, Elizabeth becomes the first person of all the generations to call Mary blessed. And after Mary realizes that what the angel had said to her was true, that she has been blessed among women, she believes that God will do everything that God said he was going to do. And so Mary's response to this news is often referred to as Mary's song. This is Mary's song, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies or magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. It's an incredible act of faith, this song of Mary The Reverend Gail Jones once said that every person has a song. Every person has a song. And then she recalled a tradition that her grandmother used to tell her about as a child. Her grandmother described how she heard about this tradition in a village in Africa, where before a child was born, the mother would write that child a song. She says the song was sung as the baby stretched in the womb, hearing its notes and melody, and then the song would be taught to others in the village. So when the child was born, the midwife and the family would sing that baby into the world using his or her song. She said that it wouldn't take long for the whole community to know the child's song. That way, as the child grew up, if he fell and scraped his knee, 
Someone from the village would come up to him singing the notes of his song over him. Or if she was lost or afraid, she could mouth the words to herself to calm herself down or for assurance. A child's own particular melody sung at their rites of passage, their their ringing out, perhaps at a wedding, um, rehearsed again and again in a moment of self-doubt and restlessness and suffering, a song that would follow a person throughout all the days of their life. Well, this was kind of like Jesus' song, a song that sings about who he is and how the rest of the world would respond to him. We often hear that song sung. It's been put to music before. We often hear it like um, there's a song called Breath of Heaven. Does anybody know that song? It's like a very light, a very airy kind of song. It's a beautiful song, but I don't really believe that that is the nature of the song that Mary sung here. I don't really believe that the song was meant to be light and airy. I believe that this song is actually quite revolutionary. In fact, there's a famous scholar who called Mary's song the most revolutionary document in the world. That's a whole other sermon in and of itself, and I've preached that sermon before if you want to go back and listen to it about about how Mary's song is a song of revolution. But no doubt that Mary is already singing the song of this upside-down kingdom, this upside-down kingdom that Jesus is preparing to usher in. You may also know this song by its other common name, besides Mary's song. Does anybody know what it's called? The Magnificat, right? Magnificat, which in Latin means my soul magnifies the Lord. And that's exactly what Mary is doing here. She herself is magnifying the Lord, and she is teaching the rest of us what it means to magnify the Lord, Because, as as author Alan Sherhouse said, Mary can see what other people would have missed, that the child in her womb will envision a new world and a new way. She understands that her child will challenge the way that things are and the established order of things. Mary seems to understand what most of our reasonable standards do not. She seems to understand what is important to God. She sings a song of a God who cares deeply and passionately about people, about how they live, about the condition of their lives in this world. God cares a lot about those who are shut out and marginalized. God cares a lot about people who in this plentiful world are hungry or in this active and bustling world are forgotten, or in this loud world of bravado are silenced. God cares about injustice and suffering and inequality of any kind. And with every word that Mary sings, this vision is personified in her, a peasant girl, poor, young, vulnerable, The kind of woman who would birth the Son of God and have no place else to place him but in a manger. Now, if God was going to choose someone to birth God's own Son in a way that seemed prudent and wise to us, you might start to think that God would choose someone elevated with great social power. Unless, of course, the choice of Mary, poor, vulnerable, represents something about God. Unless, of course, who Mary is, poor and vulnerable, tells us something about who God is. That God comes into the world this way, works in the world this way, and wanted the son to be born to this woman, to know her wisdom. 
For Mary, it's news that swells in song that her son will side with the outsiders and feed hungry people without expecting anything in return, that he will welcome outcasts and model a world as it could be with the hungry fed and the oppressed freed, where we would welcome outcasts and model a world as it could be where everybody is welcomed and the marginalized are affirmed in God's gift of justice and righteousness ever increasing in volume. This news is too good for Mary to keep silent. What about you? Is the news of Jesus too good for you to keep silent? For Mary, the good news of who God is and what Jesus was coming to do is just too good for her not to share it. Her soul had to magnify the Lord. Her very being, her very being had to make his name great or his name greater. She wasn't magnifying God because her circumstances were easy, because clearly they weren't. It's easy or easier, at least, for us to magnify God when things are going well in our own lives, when things seem manageable. But Mary knew, Mary knew what it was. She knew that it wasn't about her circumstances at all. She knew that it was about her perspective. It was about her perspective, right? So when and if I'm willing enough to throw on my readers, do my glasses change the words that they are helping me to see? Oh, they don't change the words. It's, not that the, it's just that the words appear larger because my perspective changes when I put my glasses on. And changing our perspective is something that we have the option to do or not to do. It's not that God needs us to magnify him. God doesn't have some kind of ego that needs to be stroked. Even when God magnified himself in scripture, the purpose was that others would know who God was. But we need to magnify him. And the reality is that we magnify so many other things instead. It's so easy for us to magnify the cares of this world, our needs, our weaknesses, our responsibilities, our to-do lists. Yet I'm guessing that most of us have noticed at this point in our lives that when you spend your energy magnifying your own life or your troubles, that it easily leads to discouragement. But when we magnify God, we see God as he truly is. We remember how great God is and we remember how good God is. That he has the strength that we need to provide for us in our weakness. And that God can easily take care of whatever it is that we need. The more we praise God, the more rightly we relate to God. And the more we praise God and tell others about what God has done, others can focus on God. Others can see for themselves how great and how good God is and that God can meet their needs as well. The more we magnify God, the more we worship God. The more we magnify God, the more others around us will worship God. Listen to what the psalmist David wrote in Psalm 34. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, says David, and let us exalt his name together. Now, I'm really, really hoping that when we gather for Christmas a year from now, 
that we're not going to be talking about this stupid pandemic anymore. I'm hoping that the restrictions and the mandates and all the things will be a thing of the past. But even if it's not, but even if it's not, my soul will magnify the Lord. At the end of the day, I, I can choose, and those of you who know me know that I am like a, just a little stubborn, just, just a sliver of stubborn in me. But at the, I'm being very sarcastic for those of you who don't know me. I'm extraordinarily stubborn. At the end of the day, I can choose to be... <laughs> yeah, I'm, That had to be Pastor Bill. <laughs> At the end of the day, I can choose to be all stubborn and childish about wearing or not wearing my stupid readers. They're not going to change any of the words on the screen, but they're going to make the words on my screen appear bigger, which is going to make it a lot easier for my poor eyes. Like other things connected to our faith, magnifying God is not something that we want to wait until we feel like doing it. It is a decision that we have to make and stick with it no matter what comes our way. There is nothing that the enemy wants more than for us to be filled with fear and to believe that God has abandoned us in this big mess. But the truth is that God has promised to never leave and never forsake us, and God is great and greatly to be praised. Magnifying God isn't going to change God, not for me, not for you, not for anything. But magnifying God in our lives might just make God a little bigger and a little more accessible to those around us. Magnifying God won't change God, but magnifying God will change you, and it will change those around you. Mary's response to Christmas was, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Her faithfulness, her willingness to magnify the Lord continues. 2,000 plus years later, it continues to bring people into a saving relationship with Jesus. People who are dying to know that they matter to God. Theologian Wes Daniels posted a poem by Oscar Romero. Are you familiar with Oscar Romero? He was a well-known priest in the Catholic Church of El Salvador, and he was a 20th century martyr. He was assassinated in front of his church just after he finished preaching. And among many of his writings, this was one of his poems. This is the Christian's joy. I know that I am a thought in God. No matter how insignificant I may be, the most abandoned of beings who no one thinks of, today, when we think of Christmas gifts, How many outcasts no one thinks of? Think to yourselves, you are that outcast. You that feel you are nothing in history. I know that I am a thought in God. Would that my voice reach the imprisoned like a ray of light of Christmas hope might also say to you, the sick, the elderly in the home for the aged, the hospital patients, you that live in shacks and shanty towns, you coffee harvesters trying to garner your only wage for the whole year, you that are tortured, God's eternal purpose has thought of all of you. He loves you. And like Mary, he incarnates that thought in his womb. This is what I think was going through Mary's head. This is what I think we should be thinking too. These words more than any other that should describe for us the heart of what Christmas hope is. I know that I am a thought in God. 
Daniels goes on to say, no matter how insignificant you think you are, the most abandoned of beings, if you feel like you are nothing in history, I know that I am a thought in God. When you feel despised or unwelcomed or judged, I know that I am a thought in God. You who have lost loved ones in this last year, I know I am a thought in God. You who are struggling with feelings of loneliness, I know that I am a thought in God. You who feel misunderstood or disregarded or pushed to the side, I know I am a thought in God. You who are wrestling with uncertainty or fear or doubt or letting go, I know that I am a thought in God. You who are dealing with life-threatening illness, I know that I am a thought in God. You for whom Christmas is not a time of celebration but a time of grieving, I know that I am a thought in God. You who have lost your way, you who have given up on God, you who are tired, worn out, struck down, you who are a long way from home, we stay together with Mary. I know that I am a thought in God. Mary's song is our song. Her words should shape our words. Her images and understanding of the meaning of Jesus' birth should shape our understanding of the meaning of Jesus' birth. Her song shows us that Christmas isn't all about the holiday hustle and bustle. It's not about the decorations or the gift under the tree. It's not about Santa. It's not even just about giving. It's about our ability to pay attention and wait. And when our time comes, to say yes and to make ourselves available just like Mary. It's about being made whole and finding healing through God's mercy. It's about our movement towards suffering, being given courage to face a difficult world and to stand strong for love, for peace, for forgiveness. Christmas is not just an event that happens, but a meaningful experience that is meant to continually shape how we understand ourselves and God and our neighbors and the world so that all people everywhere will come to hear God's voice inside them and say along with us, I know that I am a thought in God. And so we magnify the Lord, today and always, because he is worthy, and so others will know that they are a thought in God. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks this morning for Mary's song, for the song that has been sung for thousands of years. God, we thank you for the example of faithfulness that she is. We thank you, Lord, that of all the people that you could have chosen, that you chose to make yourself known in someone like Mary, in someone who by all accounts in that culture and that day and age didn't matter. She was young, she was poor, she was a she. Thank you, Lord, for what that tells us about who you are and where your heart is and who your heart belongs to. God, this Christmas, may we open our eyes to those that you seek after, to those who are on the fringes, to those who are hurting, to those who are poor, to those who need to know that they are a thought of yours. And so God, wherever we go today and in the days to come, may we magnify you, for you are great and worthy of being praised. In your holy name we pray.